Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte. And Willa Walsh, and you're listening to... Welcome Project Radio. <laughs> Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good this season. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. Theme music is provided by WBLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. So um, typically what we do is we play the stories and we pause in between each to have a conversation about what the storytellers experience. And today, Allison, you brought a couple stories um, in light of Black History Month. Do you want to talk a little bit about why you chose these two stories? Yeah, so um, both of these stories come from our Flight Paths Initiative. And um, in the spirit of recognizing that Black History Month is American history, it mm-hmm just reminded me of some of the interviews we've done with some of our oldest storytellers as part of that Flight Paths Initiative, um, which is our story collection for Northwest Indiana. And I've always been quite amazed at how, when I listen to how far back they go in their family stories, I'm starting to hear these threads of what I learn as American history. So it just seemed like it would be a a good opportunity to bring forward one of our storytellers. And she is a favorite of mine. (laughs) I don't know if we're allowed to have favorites, um, as long as there's more than one, because I would have trouble choosing just my favorite. But this is certainly um, someone near and dear to my heart. So I thought it would be fun to have two stories from the same storyteller as well. Sometimes we've done that in the past, but it's, it's pretty rare. And so... It's interesting to hear different aspects or different parts of the interview, too. So, mm-hmm. Well, she, in this first story today, she's recounting her childhood growing up in Gary. And this first story is titled, Remember Where You Came From. I say uh, to my grandkids all the time, you can never forget who you are, but you have to remember where you come from. You know what the WPA is. It was a work program that Roosevelt set up during the Depression. I always tell everybody I'm a Depression baby because I was born in 1929. And my mother was a trained welder. They sent her to school. She thought when she came here, she would go to the mill and get a job. They would not hire her. The only job that she would be able to get would be as a cook or cleaning. She said, no, thank you. And that's when she took the two jobs, cleaning houses and waitressing. I counted one time. She took orders from five tables. When she came back, not one person got the wrong drink or the wrong dish. She went up this high (laughs) for me when I saw her do that because I was sitting there wondering, how do you remember her? She said, oh, you do it. You just learn how to do it, that's all. I often wondered (laughs) how far she would have gone if she had had the opportunities that are open for us now. I had a brother. He was born here in Gary. As we got older, I had to babysit him naturally. I was at home 
and there was a young man that would always come by, which I did not like, period. I said, Billy, you tell him I'm not at home. And I went in the bedroom and stood with the door open, and he opens the door, and what does he say? <laughs> she said to tell you she's not at home. <laughs> oh, I was ready to kill him. <laughs> so I had to go out, shamefaced and all, and said, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I'm babysitting, period. <laughs> Whatever I learned to do in school, like if it was sewing or cooking, I had to come home and teach him. If he was in carpenter shop or any other shop that I couldn't do, he had to come home and teach me. My aunt was a good cook. She made the best lemon pie in the world. I could never make that lemon pie. He comes home one day because he was in the service. I said, I sure wish I had one of Aunt Mamie's pies. And he said, which one are you talking about, B? I said, I'm talking about that lemon pie, you know, the one with the thick meringue on it. And she did not use an egg beater to make that meringue. She used a fork. He goes in the kitchen. He didn't tell me what he was doing. <laughs> and he made that pie. I've been trying to make that lemon pie for I don't know how long. How come you got to make it? And he laughed, and he hugged me. He said, because I paid attention and you didn't. <laughs> but yeah, my brother and I were good friends. I was sorry when he passed. He was in the Vietnamese War, and he got sprayed with that Agent Orange. When he came home, he wasn't feeling like he usually did. I called and told him that I was going to come to see him because he was sick. And he said, okay. And the nurse said, uh, I'm holding the phone so he can talk to you, okay? I said, okay. And when I got there, he had already passed. Yeah, I lost both of them, my brother and my mother. This is WVLP 103.1 FM, and this is Listen Up. Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schutte, and co-host Willa Walsh. We are without our fellow, fellow triple co-host, <laughs> Reagan Skaggs, today. Um, and we miss, we miss Reagan, of course, but we're glad to be with you. So today we're playing two stories from the Flight Paths Initiative, which is the Welcome Project initiative that's focused on Northwest Indiana's history, especially located in Gary and um, here in, in Porter County as well. Um, these stories are also in honor of Black History Month and remembering that Black history is American history. So where do you want to start with this story? Yeah, so I don't know. My first question is, like, what are some of the memories that stood out to you? Um, well, I don't want to jump to the meringue yet, but... <laughs> Every time I'm whipping egg whites, I think of this story. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think that I'm really surprised by um, the details about her mother and the training she got through the WPA. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't actually realize that women would have been trained for, like, what's typically considered masculine skills. Mm -hmm. um, 
So the fact that she got training as a welder um, was surprising. And then it was maybe less surprising <laughs> than when she comes to, to Gary and wants to get a job as a welder in the mills. Um, they, they won't let her. Mm-hmm. I like that she refuses to take the um, cooking or cleaning job, even though when she goes out then on her own to get work, she ends up doing both of those things. Or I guess waitressing isn't quite the same as cooking. But um, so the sense of that pride, Mm -hmm. um, which I feel like given what we hear from the storyteller in this and other stories was certainly a legacy she passed down to her kids. Mm -hmm. And I really like that. Um, What about you? And in so far as the memories? Yeah. I mean, it was also the meringue for me. That's also what stood out the, uh, um, especially when she was talking about like her whipping it with a fork. Yes. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That's so powerful. (laughs) Um, but also she talks about like kind of in keeping with that, like those gender jobs, like when she and her brother would learn different things at school and then like carpentry or cooking, like they would come home and share those learnings with each other. That way there were like no sort of gendered gaps there. And I thought that was also really cool. Did you get the sense that it was like her mom? that sort of enforced that rule Mm, I don't know I was assuming that but I I actually don't know I mean the storyteller doesn't say explicitly it just says I had to come home and teach him and he had to come Mm. home and teach me so I'm assuming that's like a parental thing but um, it could have been self-motivated too I don't know yeah I don't know I like that yeah especially since her mom was a welder it would make sense that she'd be like well my daughter should learn yeah these things yeah that's cool um, the, of course, this, the memory in the middle is pretty sweet as well. I wonder how old her brother was at the time and how conscious he was of out, you know, outing her Yeah, yeah. in terms of like, yeah, she's just in the other room, but she told me to tell you that she's not home. <laughs> like, was that like a five-year-old thing where you just actually repeat what you were told to say? Or was that like an, a 10-year-old thing where you're like, I'm going to get her in trouble? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'd pass that back off to you because I don't have any siblings, but is that what your siblings would have done? Would they have cooperated or (laughs) outed you? (laughs) Well, it depends on which sibling because I do have four and I feel like one of my brothers uh, who's like eight years younger than me, I can certainly imagine him as a five-year-old accidentally like outing me. I I can imagine my brother that's a year older than me doing (laughs) it much more intentionally. Yeah, but I think that um, the other feature of that memory that I enjoy is her, like the storytellers taking responsibility for it, like coming out and actually, mm-hmm. uh, sh- she says shamefaced. And I don't know, it's just such a human moment, like thinking about how difficult that would have been to swallow. And then... I'm assuming this is, you know, maybe that's some someone they went to school with, the storyteller went to school with, and so you know there's going to be the next day when you have mm-hmm. to see them in the hallways or whatever, and yeah, yeah. Uh, what else about this story should we dig into? Yeah, I was thinking maybe more about, like, her like how she views her mom like through the memories that she provides um like what she's thinking about 
So say that one more time. Yeah, yeah. Like, so, like, in terms of, like, how she's remembering her mom, like, what, how do we understand Mm. her view of her mom based on the details that, that she's giving us? Yeah. I mean, I think I've already said that I feel like there's this sense of pride. Um, There's also a sense of skill, you know, like, um, which I think if you've never been a wait, a wait staff person before, and you've never uh, had to manage all the information that you do when you're serving different tables at the same time, you might not appreciate that there's a lot of mental flexibility that goes into that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I appreciate that the storyteller is able to see that and be in awe of it and then realize that that kind of skill would also translate into other areas. So just wondering you know, how far she would have gone if her mother had had the opportunities that we're open to us now. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, pride and also awareness of how, um, like what capacity and capabilities like her mother had, which I think, you know, like as kids, it can be, it can be really hard to see that. I, I know I remember my mom. Um, so when my baby sister was born, she's like 14 years younger than me. My mom started working third shifts so that we had another source of income, but that she could still be home with the little littler kids and, mm. and of course the infant. And I didn't, you know, it just as a, what would I have been? 13, 14, 15 year old. Um, it just kind of didn't register. I just sort of took it in stride and it really wasn't until I got to college and just realized like how much, um, extra, weight my mom was taking on in order to you know help help the family and also still be with her her kids and you know I often felt like I didn't have enough attention from my mom because like there were five of us um so that's what I saw (laughs) you know from my perspective and so it took time before I could really like admire and see all that my mom had sacrificed um and and notice the in, the impact it had on her. She was really tired a lot, of course. <laughs> um, yeah. So it I, and I don't know when this storyteller was able to notice that, mm-hmm. you know, about about her mom or not. Um, if it was always available to her, or if it was something you know that with perspective and time, she was able to name. Mm-hmm. I think it's so interesting that, like, I feel like this is, like, a reoccurring theme, like, the idea of, like, can you, like, fully appreciate what somebody else is going through Mm -hmm. without being in those shoes yourself? Like, how do we access that appreciation for others and, like, belief that it can be really difficult or, like, like an acknowledgement of, like, all of these things that you're juggling without doing it yourself? Like, I work part-time right now, and so yesterday I worked four and a half hours I came home I did dishes I did all the laundry I like cleaned the floors like I just like I was able to like clean some things and I felt so accomplished I'm like (laughs) look at me go like I did it and I think like honestly beforehand I think you just assume that it's like it doesn't 
take forever to sort of like do maintenance things. But I, I find like so often that it's just like it takes so much time to do all of these things that like something that should be obvious, like that I should be cleaning these things and these things should be done. Like I'm like still patting myself on the back. So I'm like, wow, you got through this. That's amazing. And like there's like there's so much that goes into like having to do all of these things and like be present on a constant basis like go to work take care of your entire house yeah have free time yeah. like it's a lot I mean I think to your point um like do we have to go through things in order to appreciate understand somebody's perspective who's gone through those things and this story starts with the storyteller saying to her grandkids you know never forget who you are you have to remember where you came from and I feel like that's part of the impulse for her is trying to give them the stories that might invite them into an experience maybe they didn't have um, so that they could better see, appreciate, and maybe then reflect on their own lives and what they might be doing similarly. Yeah, yeah. Do you think there's other reasons why she gives them this command remember where you come from (laughs) yeah I think it's like that's part of it right like an idea of like being able to appreciate but I think like I I don't know I was thinking of this more of like being sure to sort of take stock of these experiences Mm. and like make sure that there's time to not only remember them but sort of like maybe analyze them or just think about them more often than and like how it can help sort of future decisions that you're making So I think about it as like, I don't know, if you're remembering times when it was really hard and I don't know, sometimes like I I catch myself sort of like trying to trying to separate from some of the hard things like growing up. Like it's just it's easier to not think about like, I don't know, like when you're sleeping on a couch or it's just I don't know, you're in these sort of like uncomfortable financial stress with your family. But I think like there's something to remembering like what that feels like that helps you have empathy for other people Hmm. because I think like it's easier to sort of garner that empathy when it's in your own family I Hmm. think we'd hope but I think like maybe something about her charge to remember where you came from is not only to think you know more generously with your family members but also maybe more generously with your neighbors Hmm. Um, because if you remember the hard times and you keep that in your mind of like, yeah, this was out of my control or this is just what had to be done. And it wasn't because you were a bad person or your family was a bad person. Like, it's just because things were hard. And I think keeping that close to you can can help you access that space when you're thinking about other people who are going through harder times and that it's not their fault or anything reflective on their personal character, but it's just something that can help you empathize with people. Yeah. This is WVLP 103.1 FM. You're listening to Listen Up. Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh. And today, our first story that we've been talking about is a Gary resident who's looking back and thinking over some of the memories of her mom and her brother in particular. And um, I mean, you know, I started the show by saying one of the reasons that I I wanted to do these stories is because um, Black History Month is also American History Month, and that through our families, we often see reflected the broader national story. Mm -hmm. And 
This first story that we listened to, I mean, it has reference to the depression and the work project, uh, work project administration um, that Roosevelt set up. Um, but the focus here is more on like these intimate moments mm-hmm. of family life. And so um, I like that thinking about that too, like, you know, American history, when I say that phrase, I'm usually thinking of the big events like the depression or World War II or enslavement um, or like colonizing the country Mm -hmm. or the Japanese internment camps. Mm -hmm. But I think that American history is also made at the smaller, more intimate level and I wanted to celebrate and acknowledge those moments, too, as part of this fabric that makes, you know, us who we are. Um, and I don't know, like, I kind of want to talk more about the the meringue because <laughs> um, we we didn't get to we didn't let ourselves dwell on it before. And I feel like it is a moment um, where now that the two children are adults and the mother has has passed on um and there's this well food is such a a great way to access memories Mm -hmm. right and so the storyteller wishes she could make the aunt's uh lemon meringue pie and does she talk about how high she got the meringue one with that she just calls it that thick meringue on top she doesn't tell us how tall it is um but the fact that her brother then went into the kitchen and was able to manufacture it mm-hmm. <laughs> and this thing this this recipe that that our storyteller had never been able to reproduce or maybe hadn't even tried because she felt like she hadn't um, gotten it passed down to her um, and that her brother could offer that to her and give like the whole kind of sense of connection, family connection back mm-hmm. to her through that. Um, and the fact that it was another moment where he kind of gets to tease her. It sort of has resonance mm-hmm. for me with the way he sort of outed her with the potential suitor that was interested <laughs> in her um, by saying like, yeah, well, I just paid attention, <laughs> you know, Um and I, it sounds like, Willow, from the fact that you also were astounded by the fact that the aunt could do this with a fork, mm-hmm. that you perhaps have tried making oh, yeah. egg whites, whip them hard. And I do this um, for like a recipe that I make regularly, but I, and I use a whisk. And I can never, like I just give up at some point. <laughs> I don't need it to be stiff like it's supposed to look on a lemon meringue pie. So I just like at some point I'm like, that's good enough and I'm going to stop. But I think about this story every time because I'm like, wow, how could how could that storyteller, how could her aunt actually have the patience or the strength yeah. of wrist? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I don't know, like, what do you make of the fact that such a small detail can stay with us, like, well beyond an interview or mm-hmm. a story that we hear from the collection? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's sort of like a really relatable experience, too, because I'm like, first of all, I can't believe that you're using a whisk because I'm using <laughs> like a hand beater and I get exhausted from that. And the fact that you're using a whisk, I 
oh my gosh, no. And then you bring it down to a fork. Like <laughs> I can't. I think like when I thought when I heard this the first time, like I I thought like what? Like a powerful like metaphoric connection between like the idea that like I know this was their aunt's pie, but like the women in their family, Mm -hmm. like whipping a meringue with a fork, incredibly powerful. And then her mom has this like, has all these welding certificates and cannot get a job, but like is balancing all of these like orders in her mind as a waitress. Like this like connection of like the power that women hold Mm -hmm. that like, I think when they get, when it gets so gendered, like cooking or waitressing, like you sort of like, infantilize it or just bring it down to a place that people think it's so easy to do just because it's generally a woman's job yeah and i think like if anybody has ever tried to make meringue with a fork (laughs) like you know how hard that is and so i think it's this like perfect image that like sort of describes this thing that's happening of like these powerful women using a fork (laughs) that's gonna stay with me yeah um I, it really makes me wish, you know, the brother had been somebody that would have been available for interviewing mm-hmm. um, to to kind of hear what it's like to come up as a a young boy and a man in a household of what appears to be predominantly strong women. I mean, I don't um, I don't know if there were uncles around as well, but maybe they just didn't leave an impression on the storyteller in the same way, or maybe not in this part of the interview at least. But yeah, it would have been um, cool to hear him reflect on that. It didn't seem to hold him back at all from, you know, learning sewing or cooking, whatever it was that he needed to learn. Um, Yeah, love it. This is WVLPLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso, community-supported radio, also streaming live from WVLP.org. We rely on donations from individuals, businesses, and other organizations in order to continue to spread the word that ongoing, volunteer-driven local media leads to a better community. Please consider supporting the station by visiting our website, wvlp.org backslash support. Donations are tax deductible, and we would sure appreciate it. And you're here with me, Allison Schutte and Willa Walsh. Reagan Skaggs is off for the week. Um, Today on Listen Up, we're honoring Black History Month and naming that Black history is American history. So we've got two stories from the same storyteller, which is coming out of our Flight Paths initiative. And that is a collection of stories that centers around Gary, Indiana, uh, the rise of the civil rights movement there, and white flight to the suburbs, as well as deindustrialization. The second story we have from the storyteller today gets a little bit more into some of that um, aspect of the Flight Paths. Yeah, the Flight Paths collection so mm-hmm. should we go ahead and jump over that mm-hmm. over to that did you have anything you wanted to say um this one is titled hitting home roosevelt was an entirely black school i think there were two or three white uh students there because their parents owned property in the area Frable was the only integrated school in the area Emerson had a few black students, but that was because they lived in the area. 
and my mother had to go to horse man school in order to get me transferred from Roosevelt to Frable. We were not allowed to go to swimming classes until Fridays. After we were supposed to take those swimming classes, they would drain the pool. When my mother found out, I thought for sure I was going to get kicked out of the school. And I don't know what she said, what she did, or what she had to do, but I was never allowed to go to the swimming. And they didn't, they didn't even put that on my schedule. I was glad because I didn't feel like it was right because my first thing is, why do I have to go in there after they haven't been in there and it's all dirty? We started a club and we called it Fro Row, which was Frable Roosevelt. We would get together and have dances and sit around, even do our homework together. When we start doing our homework together, that's when we found out that the books Roosevelt had were almost five years older than what we had. The information that we had in our history books, uh, even our math books, uh, our literature, all of that was totally different from what they had. Why didn't they have the same information available to them that we had? And that's when it really started hitting home about how things were. I was starting to grow up and starting to see things the way my parents were seeing them. And I started to realize how much of a sacrifice they were making. They did a lot of things that were quiet. They didn't do the marching and the, all this stuff that everybody else was doing. They did whatever they had to do to let them know that it wasn't acceptable. They did it in a very quiet way. It was almost like they did not want us to see the hardship they were having to make it possible for us to get a very good education. This is Listen Up. Welcome Project Radio here at WVLP LP 103.1 FM and streaming on live online at WVLP.org. And I'm Allison Schutte with co-host Willa Walsh. Today we have two stories from our Flight Paths Initiative, both by the same storyteller, reflecting on um, her family and her family's history in the region. Um, actually, we wanted to supply a little bit of uh, extra background on this story because um, the storyteller herself wasn't born in uh, Gary. She arrived here um, from Detroit. So do you want to read that part of the transcript, Willow? Mm-hmm. So this is an excerpt from uh, the transcript from our whole story. Um, it says, the school I went to in Detroit was what they now say was integrated. When I came here to Gary, there was an East Pulaski and, an, and a West Pulaski. East Pulaski was for my people, and West Pulaski was for other people. That's the way it was. One of the buildings was a cooking classroom. 
We from East Pulaski would go to our cooking class and make lunch for the children at West Pulaski and East Pulaski. We did the cooking for both. I don't know if you realize the shocker to a child of 11 years old, almost realizing that you're not accepted because of the color, and that was hard. Yeah, so um, you actually elided an extra line in there, which I think is worth sharing, especially if you watch the video of this, which for those of you listening on radio, um, at our website, welcomeproject.valpo.edu, a lot of our stories actually are videos, not just audio. And um, in this particular video, there's a moment where the storyteller story says, I don't know if you realize, and then she kind of looks at the side of the camera mm. and says, I don't know if you realize the shocker to a child of 11 years old, almost realizing that you're not accepted because of the color, and that was hard. So nobody would have any way of knowing this if they weren't actually in the room, but like I... Um, was not the only interviewer that day. We had also brought along a young African-American student from Valpo who was leading the interview with the storyteller. So the storyteller was mostly directing her answers at the young black woman. But when she says the second, I don't know if you realize, she was looking at me (laughs) like, who is white, I will just say. Um, So I I think that's interesting and... um, a part of her awareness of this kind of story about race uh, in America and the different experiences people do and don't share. But um, mm-hmm. what did you find interesting about this first part of the story, this, this context for her arrival? Yeah, well, she was talking about East and West Pulaski, too, like, and how she said East Pulaski was for my people, which we can assume is for black people at the time, and West Pulaski was for other people, which we can assume are white people. And just the, I think she does a really good job at, like, succinctly talking about the differences between what's expected of both schools, Mm -hmm. is that at her school, they made the lunch for her school and West Pulaski, Mm -hmm. the other school. I, that just that children at one school are responsible for the experience of children of another school. Well, it also echoes the first story we heard in the first half hour of how when her mom went to get a job at the mill welding, they were like, no, but if you want to cook or clean, you can. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's also saying something about the gender roles and the stereotypes for black women in particular and what roles they were supposed to play as like taking care of and yeah. you know nurturing others sort of thing so it's interesting that then she has that experience as a child probably at the same time that her mom is being told at the mill no you cannot be a welder no matter the fact that you have these certificates because you went through the training yeah And I also, it also stuck out to me that she named it like that she had experienced it at 11 years old, Mm. which I think like, I think would be surprising to like a white audience specifically, because like, especially as we're thinking now a days about like critical race theory, like when, when do you become aware of Mm. some of these like systematic issues Mm -hmm. that sort of plague our policy and the way we live our lives? And I think like, yeah, so for a white audience, it does make sense that you would come about this later on because you're sort of shielded from this education wise. And especially if you're living in sort of like a segregated neighborhood or school system, that's not something you typically talk about. And so the fact that 
she's coming to this realization um, as a black child at 11 years old, I think would be surprising um, to most white people who listen to this story. Yeah. And, and it's informed by the fact that coming out of Detroit, she was at a school that she says they would now say was integrated. Yeah. So it is actually a new experience for her as a child um, to suddenly arrive in a new city and be segregated by race when that's not something that you had experienced prior. Mm-hmm. So as we're looking at how that um, sets up the rest of the story, what other questions do you have for us to be thinking about this way that Gary itself, like the school system, had some, well, was predominantly segregated. Mm -hmm. um, And Roosevelt was created, in fact, to be an entirely black school. Yeah. Some of the questions that I had, like after reading this story, I'm thinking about like, you know, her experience as a child, um, realizing like what race has an impact on her education. I'm also thinking about um, the fact that um, like her experience, like going to swimming class, like yeah. how that was, how that experience was divided by race. Um, and also just like the idea of like integrated versus segregated schools. And we think, and she's telling us about this, like through the lens of like maybe this would be like the 50s maybe like 40s 50s area um and so we think about like so typically when I think segregation integration my brain also goes to like 50s 60s era um but like is that still true today are we still seeing Mm -hmm. that today like have we come over that um and then also um how her parents did things quietly how they were able to push back quietly and sort of what did that mean and like what was she what was she pushing back against well I think one quiet uh action that her mom took was that um she had to go to Horace Mann school in order to get me transferred from Roosevelt to Frabel so I mean the storytellers made it pretty clear that um the school you go to is based on the neighborhood you live in. And um, so first of all, I'm, I think there's a part of me that's surprised. Like why wouldn't her mother based on the sense of pride that I feel like I understand for her character from that first story, Mm -hmm. like why wouldn't she want her daughter to go to an all black school so that makes me realize that I'm conflating um, certain ideas of pride. Mm-hmm. If it's pride in race or culture versus pride in self and what self is able to accomplish. Um, it also makes me wonder how much the parents recognized that there was an inequity between the schools um, and that Roosevelt was not separate but equal. Um, which I think is probably not the entire history of that school. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've heard from other storytellers the amazing kind of education that happened for them at Roosevelt. So I don't want this one story to be like the entire story for Roosevelt. Um, 
But I do find it really interesting that her mom, maybe because of the experience her daughter had had in Detroit, and then the experience that her daughter had between Pulaski West Side and East Side, that she really wanted her daughter to be at Frable, the integrated school. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was definitely like some sort of quiet activism that was going on. Like her mother wasn't leading protests to say integrate the schools. She's like, I'm going to make sure my daughter gets into the program where I think she's going to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think it's interesting that even at the integrated school, they were desegregate. They were segregating students. The pool is like the example that the storyteller gives mm-hmm. us here. So it's yeah, it's curious how the racism infiltrates <laughs> even those schools that are supposedly bucking the trend in other ways. Do you want to just talk about how you heard the story of the swimming pool? Like, what do you think's going on there? Yeah, so I think this maybe like when she talks about like, you know, being 11 and realizing how race impacts her experience, I think this is maybe one example of that. So the idea that um, like her class didn't go to swimming until Friday, um, which would, which in my mind says like, okay, people have been using the pool all week. And so she's only allowed to use it on Friday, the last day. Um, and after which they would drain it. Um, so I think it's just that idea of like, I don't know. I mean, that's really like that obviously impacts the way that, you know, you could see yourself, um, but especially the way that you understand how other people see you in terms of like where you're slated um, to do your activity if you're on a Monday or if you're on a Friday. And I like the fact that she points out like, why do I have to go in there on Friday after it's, you know, people have been in it all week, like, and it's all dirty. And so it's like, she's sort of like pointing out this like, objective reasoning which is like it would be more dirty on this day like why I don't know why would I have to go on this day like like why do people think that I would make it dirty on a Monday and so you get these sort of like small instances of racism that's sort of like I don't know I guess maybe like a drumbeat of like helping you understand like as a person where you stand in the eyes of other people and sort of like how the administration especially at the school sees you and values you and the assumptions that they have about you yeah I think it's a pretty big instance of the real real like uh, evil of one of the real evils of racism where you assume like a whole type of people, in this case, black people, are somehow dirtying the water for white students in a way that white students aren't dirtying it for black students. So it's not about like individual levels of cleanliness. There's some other assumption going on that's like supposedly more than skin deep. And it's really disturbing actually to have it named. And it's making me think of... um, the book The Sum of Us, which is not too old now, and by Heather McGee, the subtitle is What Racism Costs Everyone. And one of the examples that she gives in that book is um, how when public swimming pools were forced to integrate through civil rights legislation, a lot of white communities basically decided to fill in the pools 
instead. So nobody could use them because they didn't want to have to share them with people of another race. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gets to a little bit of, of Heather McGee's subtitle, like for, uh, for, for white people, oftentimes the idea of sharing a, a resource is so egregious if you've bought into white supremacy or you just bought into racial hierarchy that you'll let yourself do without in order to rob someone else of that opportunity and mm-hmm. resource as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just disturbing <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, is a part of Heather McGee's argument for how if we all want to um, flourish, we should be working for these resources to be available for everybody, um, that white people are actually um, often harming not just others, but also themselves in the in the meantime. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this story brought that up for me a bit too. And with that, I think like, especially in this story, we, again, we th- we're thinking about it in that like context of like the fifties, the but it's like, we're still seeing elements of this today. It's like, I think about like, if you go on Facebook or YouTube or something, like the idea of like Karens, like calling out mm. black people in public spaces. And it's like, it's the same sort of like operation that's happening. It's like a not a naming of racism, but it's the fact that like, you know, if like a little white kid is selling lemonade in the park, it's like, a Karen is not going to bat an eye of like if this kid has like a business permit or something to be there. But it's the idea that if it's a black child, the police are going to get called. Or if it's a black person at a swimming pool, you know, there's questions of like, is this person supposed to be here? I'm going to call the police. Like it's that same sort of like operating mentality. That's not like we didn't leave this in the 60s. Like this is something that like is happening in 2022 that people continue to do like question whether or not black people deserve to be in spaces when you're not questioning it for white people so like it's still this sort of like white supremacy framework that people have unconsciously in the back of their mind that caused them to like like I have a friend that's a 911 operator and she's like you wouldn't believe the amount of times people call me and it's these older white women who call me and say like oh there's a black person in my neighborhood I need police to come out here because I don't have a black person that lives in my neighborhood mm-hmm. and you know the police will get called and they'll come out and the guys like yep this is my house I don't know what you want from me <laughs> um so like this this happens this happens in Valparaiso you know it happens all the time and so this idea of like this isn't something that we've sort of overcome it's just operating in our main day context and this is what it looks like now you're listening to listen up welcome project radio with me Allison Schutte and Willa Walsh on WVLP LP 103.1 FM and streaming online at wvlp.org how do you see the storyteller responding to this racism like what does she do with her peers 
Yeah, well, she, I mean, they started a club, Fro-Ro, which was Froebel and Roosevelt. Um, and so it's sort of like creating um, maybe like, I don't know, like a club alliance sort of thing, like getting conversations generated between the schools, Frabel, which was integrated, and Roosevelt, which was like mostly black school. And so because they were they made this sort of club together, they were able to learn that the books that Roosevelt had were almost five years older and out of date from the books that they had at Frabel. And so I think like one thing that happened is like by making an effort to sort of make this club across schools, which is kind of interesting and not typically how we think about yeah, yeah. when you talk to people at schools. But so like like through this sort of alliance, she was able to learn like the the disparities that were happening between the schools. And so I think maybe one takeaway, especially from this is like talking to other folks and like how they're doing can can sort of enlighten like what you have and maybe what other people don't have yeah she also at least in retrospect um says that's when it really started hitting home and I started seeing things the way my parents were seeing them and started realizing how much of a sacrifice they were making that they did things quietly and I I wonder um Like what you, how how you react to that. Like part of me um, feels like I, like why not out on the streets? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like why not protesting in larger, more formal, organized ways to change conditions? Why do it in this more quiet way? And I feel very uncomfortable as a white person. <laughs> I think like even like calling that out, like, cause like, what do I know necessarily, at least when it comes to race about why you would opt for this more quiet approach to getting your family or your children, what they need versus the community organized approach. Um, but I don't know. Did you have, reaction to that when you heard her reflect on it or how are you thinking about that yeah yeah I mean I think that's a really good point I mean I think like what I think about is like organizing like it it makes sense like I feel like my impulse as a person is to sort of do that like in your face activism like get out there be in marches but I it makes sense to me that there's an idea of like maybe that can make you be seen as a group or there's like an maybe what her parents like we don't know what her parents were thinking but I think that's also like marching can help the visibility of a cause and can sort of like show how many people are behind it but I think at the same time you're sort of you know you're up against the people in power who have the ability to change these things and so maybe if you don't believe in your ability to convince the people in power there's a different way to go about it and I think about my partner a lot who I, I would say, like, prop, like does this sort of, like, quiet activism. Like, she's not very much, like, in the streets and marching and things like that. But she's, I think she feels like having conversations with individual people. And I don't know, like, there's a, there's a, there's a more subtle way to get people on your side. And, and she's really good at that. She does that all the time at work. Like she can really, I don't know, what's, what's the book? Like how to win f- friends and influence people. Yeah. Like this sort of like mentality that like you can really get people behind your ideas and, and get them to believe that it's their idea and sort of advocate for it. Because I think in her mind that that method is more successful because it 
puts people less on the defense and yeah. more on your yeah. side. And so I feel like she feels that's like a way more effective way. And so I wonder if this is more of like that type of thing that her parents were doing, this sort of like quiet individual case by case thing, like by having her go to Frable, by having those conversations with the school, like at Horace Mann. So I wonder if there's just a different idea of like what it takes to be successful. Like how do we cross that boundary of equality? Yeah, and maybe the two approaches also don't need to be mutually exclusive. Yeah, yeah. In fact, maybe they are better when yeah. they're operating at the same time. I mean, I think to your point, like, if you want to get change, you're going to have to at some point get in conversation with the people who have the ability to give you access. Um, so then it's a matter of, like, how broad does that access go does it just remain with you and your family or are you able to from that point like expand the access and if there's people on the streets at the same time that's maybe going to make that a little bit more feasible I think there might actually be another reason too for this storyteller at least she she ends by saying at least this story um you know talking about her parents they weren't they didn't do the marching They did their, she doesn't say activism, but I'll call it that, in a very quiet way. It was almost like they did not want us to see the hardship they were having to make it possible for us to get a very good education. And I think that piece, they did not want us to see the hardship, is really interesting. And I don't know if I could articulate this, but it feels to me like it's something like It's a protective move on the part of the parents to um, shield in some way how racism plays out. Because if, if you go to the streets, then you're naming the racism, which is making you aware that you are operating under racist principles and structures and that you are seen by others as less than. And if the parents can somehow take on that work so this, their, their children don't have to even think of themselves. Like, I mean, I think it's pretty clear from the picture we get of this storyteller's mother that she never made them feel like, and I don't even know that for herself she ever felt like she was less than. Mm-hmm. But you can still understand that somebody else believes that about you, even if you aren't yourself then buying into that. And it seems like um, at least this storyteller's parents were really interested in how can I make as little of that noise, that message, like seep into my child's life so that they can actually just be the full human being that they are. Now, in this case, the parents couldn't fully protect the kids from that, right? Because this storyteller at least is experiencing it at Pulaski, Mm -hmm. um, where the two schools are segregated and the black children are cooking for both white and black children. And then we have the swimming pool example, and then we have the textbook example. So it seems... Like, even that desire to protect is not successful, mm-hmm. but it sounds like it matters to the storyteller still that that's 
the intention or motivation that her mom had in being a quiet activist. Mm -hmm. Because I can imagine, too, like, it's just, like, even if you're sort of noting these small injustices as a child along the way, I think, like, when you bring it into conversation, like, just realizing the breadth of how many things are unfair and sort of unkind to you just based on what you look like, I think it can just be really overwhelming and really hard to sort of fight back against once you feel really overwhelmed by that that idea. But I but I think overall, I know we're nearing our time, but I do just want to call out just like this idea of like she the storyteller as a black child at 11 started to understand how race was impacting her experience and her parents' experience. And I think as she called out like you know, to you, the white person in the room, Allison, like as an interviewer, that you might not have known that she was feeling that way at 11, because I think a lot of white folks don't start to parse out the injustices of like racial segregation mm-hmm. and systematic racism, like until later. Like, I know I definitely wasn't sort of aware of it until late high school, definitely in college. And that's not something that ever impacted me at 11 years old at all. And so I think it's important to remember that just because white children don't see it that early, they wait later, doesn't mean that black children aren't experiencing it. And so I think this just comes down to things like critical race theory in schools when we're going to advocate for that. Mm. Just because your kids are, it's not important for your kids, maybe you think, to learn about that. It is super important for the experience of kids in the entire community to have these conversations, especially when they're being impacted at ages as young as 11 and earlier, because once we can start to have these conversations, because in a polarized society, I think we're, we're bad at having conversations. If we can start that earlier and start to have those conversations, like critical race theory, which is basically only teaching that race is a social construct and that racism is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice, but is also something embedded in legal systems and policies. So just teaching that racism isn't an individual act. It's something that's embedded in the way that we operate as America that that can be really useful for white and black children in the school system, talking about that at all. Yeah, yeah. And I think it can and it can help everybody to realize that you can be a good person and still be participating in racism. Exactly. And that actually is a way out for all of us if we can then start to change those structures. So Totally. With you, 100%. <laughs> Preach it. Uh, before we head out today, please check out WVLP's full schedule at WVLP.org. We highly recommend Morning Black, which airs live every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. Building Leaders and Cultural Knowledge, that's what Black stands for, is a platform for discussions surrounding the concerns of race and ethnicity, specifically within and about the African American community here in Northwest Indiana. Uh, The program is underwritten by donations from members of the Northwest Indiana African American Alliance and their community partners. So that's it for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. 
Both are also open for business at their locations downtown on Lincoln Way. Visit their websites to learn more. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marachna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. You can find us online at welcomeproject.valpo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to support WVLP and our show, you can make a donation by going to wvlp.org support.